this is Midday Modern Conversations from Hogarth's House. And today we'll be talking about William Hogarth as a pet owner, pet keeping in the 18th century, and Hogarth's affectionate portrayal of animals, not least in the form of his beloved pug, Trump. I'm John Collins and I have the privilege of managing Hogarth's House, the artist's former home, now a historic house open to the public. I'm joined today by Dr. Stephanie Howard-Smith, historian of human-dog relationships in Georgian Britain. Stephanie has a PhD on the cultural history of the lapdog in the 18th century from Queen Mary University of London, and in 2016 curated an exhibition on William Hogarth and animals at Hogarth's house. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, John. Um, Let's dive straight in to talk about Hogarth and a fan of portraying himself in self-portraits, and perhaps his most famous self-portrait doesn't just have him in, it has his pug in as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the great thing about self-portrait with Pug or Painter and his Pug is that it's not just a, it's not only is it not just a portrait of William Hogarth and Trump, his Pug, it's actually, when you look at it, it's a Trump is the living thing in that portrait. Hogarth himself appears as a portrait within a portrait. Uh, and obviously Trump is in a privileged position. He's, in, he's positioned in front of the portrait it's, itself. Um, so at the time, we know that when people were talking about self-portrait with Park or Painter and, and, and Park, they were they really were struck by the fact that it's a portrait of a man and a dog, not a man with a dog, um, but the two kind of presented deliberately as equals. And um, this is something that really bothered people at the time. It was quite unusual uh, and something that, that drew a lot of comment. Is it, it's unusualness is that Hogarth himself is unusually affectionate towards his pets, to, towards animals, um, and I think it's a very interesting kind of trait as him as a man. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that comes through in so much of his work, and I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later about not just his work, which is particularly about uh, animal cruelty, things like the, the, five, the four stages of cruelty, um, but the way animals are really carefully and lovingly presented uh, throughout his work, or occasionally humorously presented as well. Um, yeah, unusual for, for quite a few reasons. I think they, they help to humanise him, the pugs as well. They give us a sense of what he was like as a person and they're funny like he is as well, uh, which helps kind of connect him as an artist. So we know that Trump wasn't his first pug. He first, his first pug was called Pug. Uh, and we know uh, about Pug, the pug, because in 1730, in December 1730, Hogarth has lost him and is obviously quite distressed about losing Pug because he puts in an advert in the Craftsman, I think advertising half a guinea reward for Pug. He describes him as a, as a light colored Dutch dog, which is what Pugs were called then. Uh, and says he's become lost from the broadcloth warehouse in Covent Garden's little piazza. Which is it, so that tells you about his affectionate relationship with that dog anyway. Not an insignificant amount of money either, it's to say again. No, exactly. So he's valued. He has a, he has a financial value. His emotional value to Hogarth has a financial value. And um, Half a Guinea was a kind of typical reward um, for kind of lost dog adverts. And remained, that was like kind of the sand maths throughout the 18th century. But you wouldn't, if you, that dog didn't mean anything to you, you were just kind of, uh, it'd be lost because London then was full of wandering animals and wandering dogs. They proposed a, a problem um, in terms of health and, and safety. Like people were always worried about dogs biting them, kind of just roaming the streets. Um, but he wanted he wanted to chop back, uh, a pug even back. And he thought that, you know, he could, someone could help him find them. But we don't know, obviously, whether they're successful or not. What we do know is that 
in another four years that Trump, the pug, has popped up. And they, yes, like I say, they have this unusually affectionate relationship. In the house, as you know, there's that lovely stool uh, on the first floor, um, which was collected. And the, I love the collection notes. I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's the stool on which a marble cistern once yes. stood where, yeah, where he laped his water up. Yeah, sat beneath the drop leaf table in the Oriel window. The Oriel window's there, there's a drop leaf table, and we have what we think is the um, plenty you're talking about on loan from Aberdeen Art Gallery, um, which is there at the house. Not not the uh, the bowl itself, but perhaps the plinth that it sat on uh, is there. So, as you say, he's Trump is a part of the household. He's a presence in the house, and he's got prime position as well. Like if you're going to have your your water bowl anywhere, that's the best place to have it. And I love that they've already thought about that. It's not just in a corner somewhere. It's, it's like say in, in the Oriel window, which is lovely. Um, and I bet that's what I like about your in the collection on loan is that you get a sense of the other inhabitants of the household it's not just it's not just Hogarth and it's not even just the servants it's you know their their animal family I guess as well who are there and I suppose this kind of ties into I understand that you're going to have the um the tombstones put up at some point is that, is that yeah there was there was a crowdfunding project um which enabled us there were two records of two tombstones two pets in the house not to Hogarth's pugs, unfortunately, but very interestingly to what we think was Mrs. Hogarth's dog from after when William died. So Jane Hogarth um, stayed on in the house and Jane had a dog. Uh, we think one of the memorials is to that dog. And the other seems to be to Dick the Drake, um, who obviously uh, not a dog, a duck. Um, but obviously there's, there's a great animal affection that's within the household generally. Yeah, and like you said, that's manifested in the kind of the household itself, in in the little table with the with the bowl, and in the gravestones in the garden. Like the fact that if you were there, you wouldn't be able to help but notice animal this animal presence. And um, I'm thinking about about Jane Hogarth um, because one of the few sources we have, which is I'm going to emphasize, 100 not reliable, is this is this source that pops up about 1840. It's this woman who claims that she was a maid in the Hogarth household after Hogarth had died. So she was supposedly Jane Hogarth's lady's maid um, and she lived a very long life. And so she gives this, this, she talks about, you know, what, what about the treatment of animals in the household. And she says, you know, Trump was so much, was really loved and everyone knew that he was Hogarth's favorite dog and he'd go he'd go out I think at nine o'clock every evening to try and find Hogarth in the pubs and he'd go from one pub to the other uh, until he found the one with Hogarth in it and then it'd be like oh sir your man's here to your dog your servant or something is here to collect you and, it, and he'd go oh ha ha and everyone would laugh about it and then they'd go home together which is really sweet I don't know if it's true but, but what's obviously... it's interesting is that even if it's not true that within a generation or two the memory of somebody, whether they're faking it or not, whether they're, you know, they've cottoned on to the local celebrity or whether they really were in that role, it seems feasible to make a story about Hogarth and Trump and that affection be something that could be believed. And still, the veracity of it today is still in question because it's plausible. It ties in with everything else we know. And if nothing else, it seems to be a tribute to that sense that, it wasn't a fleeting or a passing thing to be affectionate to animals. And perhaps it's useful to put that in a bit of context because obviously Hogarth isn't just 
man by himself. He's not just with his family, he's somebody of the 18th century. And perhaps if we talk more widely about pet keeping itself in the 18th century and how typical or not Hogarth was in that sense. Yeah, so we think about pet keeping historically, perhaps as a kind of a Victorian invention. The idea of, you know, imagine kind of a nuclear family with the mum, the dad and the kids and a couple of cats and dogs in a kind of like very cosy Victorian setting um, but it was very popular during the 18th century too. Just like now there's an idea that there are fitting pets for certain people so just like now um, as a cat lover yourself I know you will have noticed that people think about cats as being women's pets when obviously they're cats hmm. uh, and likewise small dogs were in the 18th century um, largely conceived as, as women's pets, big dogs, hunting dogs, man's pets uh, and within all these kind of different sections, there are different ideas of what is appropriate to do with that pet um, and how much affection it's appropriate to bestow on it. And that affection can be love and stroking, and but it, it can also be like letting it into your house in certain rooms. It can be buying things for your pet. It can be doing things with them. Um, and it's so Hogarth's unusual because not only does he have a, the, these lap dogs, pugs, but he has a very emotionally and not semi-financially affectionate relationship with them. So it's things like buying the, the stool with them um, and th that sort of thing. Um, generally, the, this kind of like really close affection relationship is quite, quite unusual for men at the time. And it becomes more common as the century goes on. Uh, and then you'll get to the kind of the beginning of the 19th and the 18th century and you'll see people like Byron who are really, really close to their dogs. And, there's this, what, one of the things that happens over the course of the 18th century is that you go from kind of pet love being a kind of individual foible, foible something that's kind of a bit quirky and eccentric. And then you get to the point where firstly, you know, kind of that animals have these qualities that we might want to emulate ourselves, like dogs are loyal, that's good. And then also the idea that an individual dog could be a model citizen in a way, and it's better, and it might even be better than some people. That's kind of a, 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 an idea that begins to take hold during this period. And then by the time you get to the beginning of the 19th century, um, the stage is set for the beginning of kind of the animal welfare movement. Um, things like the RSPCA eventually um, are founded. So Hogarth's part of the spectrum. He's kind of at this really, really crucial tipping point between kind of the old way of owning a pet and the new way of owning a pet. And his work as well, constantly displays the kind of the, the moral benefits and just make, almost in a kind of attempt to normalize throughout Hogarth's work, kindness to animals is shown as a positive thing. He does, it's not just that he only shows kindness, but when he depicts cruelty to animals, it's seen as something that has consequences. And at the same time, affection and kindness to animals is seen as having both personal and very real world positive consequences throughout all different types of Ogos work. Yeah, absolutely. So many of the people he paints have their pets with them and they often sometimes they'd be something that, they, that sometimes what they're doing within the work is kind of adding a bit of action. But like the most obvious example of things we're talking about is something like the, the four stages of cruelty where this is the kind of negative side of, of animal behavior, human-animal relationships opposed to the positive side which is more interesting but the negative side is like the idea and it was so the four stages of cruelty is as you know obviously done um to, to as this really kind of visceral graphic representation of animal cruelty at least the, four, the first stages so this is the kind of the london scene where all the urchins are like poking out pigeons eyes and swinging cats and organizing cockfights and 
And what ends it, what it ends with um, is kind of this natural progression that if you start off, if, or if the kind of circumstances you bore, are born in kind of make you immune to this kind of cruelty, then you'll inevitably end up perpetuating it on someone else. So in, th in that case, he kills his pregnant lover. Um, and this is kind of a, an older, Hogarth wasn't the first person to kind of think that the kind of, if you're, if you, if you're so cruel, you'll happily, you know, maim a bird for fun, then that probably doesn't speak much to how you'll have relationships with people down the line. But he does popularise this idea, definitely, and at a time when other people are doing the same thing, uh, which really helps. And he made sure that when he made the four stages of cruelty, that there'd be a woodcut option that was much cheaper. Mm. So it'd be more easily disseminated. This was a very carefully thought out and savvy piece of, of kind of political, not propaganda, but basically propaganda, like a media campaign, like don't don't burn out pigeon's eyes because if you do, <laughs> you'll end up killing their love and being executed at Tyburn. And eventually the dog has, um, animals kind of get their revenge because the, the dog is shown in the uh, oh, dissecting theater yeah, the, he's on the anatomist's table after after his execution for murder. So the, the protagonist's journey, as you say, begins with cruelty to animals, turns to cruelty to people, sees him executed and being in front of an audience cut open on the anatomist's table. And in a gory but comic scene, the guts fall from his stomach and are being chewed on by a dog at the, at the foot of the table. So it rounds itself very interestingly. And again, you enter depictions of of animals in Hogarth as really part of the sort of central moralizing that he does throughout his work as well. Absolutely. And animals are very good at kind of carrying out that kind of cultural work in any kind of visual media. Um, they were really, really popular in satire, um, a really handy way to, to communicate any number of things from, you know, overindulgence in financial things to, to even being symbols of countries. It's a really easy shorthand and that people can kind of get to grips quite easily so uh, and yeah let's talk about the dogs themselves about hogarth's dogs um you've already mentioned sort of the idea of a lap dog um being associated with something that's more appropriate for a woman um hogarth obviously is you know very connected to these two pugs that we know he has and yet something seems to be going on here about trump and his his pugs himself um, why pugs as well? Why have we got Hogarth owning pugs? I mean, I think we think of them as quite a quintessentially 21st century um, status symbol. And it's certainly kind of their popularity has grown and grown. But what is the place of the pug as a pet anyway? So just as that you say, you think about it as kind of 21st century thing that's grown and grown. So pugs and like if you think back to 10 years ago when they were everywhere, the same thing was happening at the beginning of the 18th century. Um, they're one of these dogs that comes in, they, they just kind of arrive in peaks and then eventually go out and then they'll come back again. And there'll be a really, there'll be a big pug trend. And so what, what's happening at the beginning of the 18th century is that this is the first of these in Britain. Um, they are the it dog. Everyone has a pug. And there are various kind of explanations of this. Like one of the things that is, is kind of suggested is they come in with, with William and Mary after the, the revolution of 1788-1689 as things from, from the Netherlands. And they're known in this country as the Dutch dog, which kind of suggested, but just like any kind of, if something's connected to a king or queen, something fashionable, that's gonna be, that's gonna be popular. Uh, and they remain vaguely associated with, with the Whig party who are associated with William and Mary and they remain associated with the Dutch um, kind of 
nation for the entire 18th century. So they're, 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 so they're, they, that's how they kind of arrive. And then they kind of, they, they are, like I said, the, the, the dogs. So George II has one in this period. Um, they are kind of the chosen dog of the fashionable aristocracy. Um, people think there's a, nowadays think of them being from China, but there wasn't that association in the 18th century at all. They are very much Dutch dogs. Isn't the word Trump a Dutch word as well? Yes. So, um, so Trump, which is obviously the name of Hogarth Park Trump, is a, basically a, an anglicisation of, um, of, I think, Trump, uh, which is uh, the name of two admirals during the Anglo-Dutch Wars. So these were well-known um, Navy commanders. Um, it, they would, the name would have had rec been recognised in Britain. And it was kind of a stock pug name um, for much of the, of the 18th century. A bit like, I suppose, if you've got a, a poodle and called it Napoleon or that, that kind of thing. Right. It's kind of a, a jokey nod to their heritage. Um, so when people... And we know that this is Trump's name. It's not this, something that's begun to him afterwards because uh, in 1740, when Hogarth goes to the Frost Fair, which is held when the Thames grows over, he gets this little souvenir printed for, for Trump, which is really unusual for a start. And there's a great source, um, but also, so we know that's, that's, that's the dog's name. Um, so when, I think what you were saying just, just then about how it seems really weird that Hogarth, who fosters such a really kind of, kind of hardworking artisanal, image like he, he he saw himself as being apart from the aristocracy and he makes fun of them in all his in all his satires um like taste in the high life so pugs fit into that world and trump doesn't so you can kind of understand a why at the time people kind of mocked him for liking these silly little dogs but also why even now it's something we we kind of feel like we need to explain somehow um so the famous hogos scholar a scholar ronald paulson has suggested maybe it's a pit bull um and that kind of it speaks to more, more kind of Hogarth's kind of like a gutsy image. Um, but I think sometimes there doesn't need to be a reason why, why we like certain animals. And, you know, this, we know the, he, he calls it, he calls Pug a Dutch dog, so, and it's called Pug. And then it, Trump has a stock Pug name. He looks like other Pugs do at the time. This has appeared before breed standards when everything was a lot kind of less everything comes kind of shape-shifty. Like, as long as you call it a pug, it, it's a pug. If it's a dog with a kind of like lightish coat color and a shortish nose, um, then then at the time, yeah. And we know that's how the people at the time saw them. Um, Trump's ears are very different though, aren't they, as well? Yes, yeah, so this is one of the, the ways Trump looks distinctly different from other pugs at the time. And th when we were just talking about how Hogarth was opposed to cautious animals, um, at the time, it was the, the trend, the fashion, it was, it was fashion for pugs to have cropped ears. So it was done with their puppies, uh, really close cut to their heads, uh, where they would take kind of the, the pinna of the whole pinna of the ear off. So they look like they don't have any ears because they don't. Um, and it remained in fashion well into the, the 19th century, which is funny because now we think of cropping as something you do to protection dogs or fighting mm. dogs to make them look mean. Um, but with Pugs, it served to make their heads look more round. Um, so, and people can read various things into that. Whether there's a rumor that made them look more like fists, um, because it come because that people made the association between the word pug and pugilism, or something like that. I don't necessarily buy that. I think it was just something that was carried over from from their, their time on the, you know, when they arrived. They're called the Dutch Mastiff. Um, right. Yeah, so I think it's kind of a hangover from that, and people didn't change from it for the sake of tradition. But Hogarth, who was so tuned to animal pain, 
obviously felt strongly enough about it to when he got his pug it didn't he didn't crop its ears and it's one of the, I think it's the only image of a pug I found from 18th century Britain where that's where that's the case so it's a really strong and unusual statement and something you probably something that's quite easy to miss when you're used to seeing pugs now which have those you know quite velvety ears and it's odd as well because it's both to the 18th century viewer it's an unusual pug and to us now looking at the depiction of a pug it's a much longer legged it's a dog that you could actually argue was a different breed and as you say that's a different sensibility again so almost Trump doesn't seem to have um, an obvious point of recognition either in the century he was from or the century that we're looking at him now but the fact that he was so distinct did bring a kind of symbolism of Hogarth and his work and it made for a sort of rallying point of Hogarth both for the good and the bad. Didn't it? Yeah absolutely so it, that portrait, Painter and his Pug, is the most iconic one. It's, uh, if, when I think of Hogarth in my head, I don't know about you, but it's the one that comes to mind. Um, they were, and as we were just saying, but that, that kind of the, the servant who has this, has this recollection of working for Jane Hogarth in the 1740s, uh, in the 18, back in the 1840s, you know, almost what, 80 years after he died, that that's what she, do you know that either the person who is making that report or she, or who's writing it for her, or her herself knows that there's interest in Hogarth's relationship with this animal. Um, the, the, the statue on, on Chiswick, I think, is it, is it Chiswick High Road? It is, yeah, yeah the Millennium yeah, statue, yeah. Yeah, accompanied by his pug. They're iconic and they're uh, so, and um, so the good side of this is that when, well, not good side, but the kind of like neutral side of it is that when people want to talk about Hogarth, they can put a, a pug in. So in some works, something like the, the Victorianist, the Victorian artist William Howard Frith always includes a pug when he's doing stuff about Hogarth. But the negative side of that at the time, uh, during Hogarth's lifetime, is that the pug was a really easy way to kind of attack and it, it. They worked as a kind of stand-in for the artist. So there are two periods in Hogarth's life when he really attract bad, bad, bad press. So the first is after he publishes um, Analysis of Beauty. So the year after it's published in 17, about 1753-ish, Paul Sandby, who's another artist working at the time, begins to publish this, this um, kind of series of satirical prints attacking Hogarth. And one of the things that's common in every single, almost all of them, is there's, you, they, lots of them have, take a kind of attack the pug. Either Hogarth is half pug, and he's kind of small and trusty, or there are pugs in it. Um, in one of them, there's a pug called Jewel, um, who lends Hogarth a bone to pick the line of beauty with. So the line of beauty being that, that, that kind of famous theory he has that the serpentine shape is the most perfect and graceful and beautiful thing. And so almost like including an ugly dog to kind of attack him for his aesthetic ideals, which is interesting. Um, and sometimes there's one called, uh, I think, Pug the Painter. So at the time, Pug also meant monkey. So because <laughs> That's Pug, yeah, very helpful. So it's a way, so, you know, you've got that kind of, it's a kind of double play in words, I guess. So painting Hogarth as an animal has the same name as the animals he likes. Uh, and there's, my favourite is one where um, a, a pug is smelling Hogarth's backside um, for, for no reason. Um, well, so for, a, for a more overarching reason of, um, of poking <laughs> at Hogarth, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then... The later in the 1760s, he has this falling out with um, Charles Churchill and John Wilkes, 
after some nasty um, prints he makes of John Wilkes. It's kind of, the, the beef is complicated and too complicated to explain simply, but it ends with them commissioning Churchill and Wilkes commissioning this satir satirical print, which has them flogging um, a, a pug, um, which is kind of crying out for mercy. It, there's like a cat and nine tail, there's blood going everywhere. And this is really like visceral image that is, it's, it's using the pug in a very carefully controlled, nasty way to kind of get at Hogarth. Um, but there's this understanding if you see, if you saw a pug, you knew it was in, the, in those kinds of circumstances, you know, it's, 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 it's clearing and this is about William Hogarth, the painter who's so closely associated with these animals. So, I mean, Hogarth, obviously, um, like all of us, worked with forever, and he dies in 1764. But do we know what happened to Trump? So we've talked about the graveyard. Um, and as you noticed, uh, as you noted, you know, there, there are two animals who have gravestones. One is one is Dick, Dick the Drake. The other is Pompey, who's Jane Hogarth's after We don't, but Trump isn't buried there. Um, so what, what Jane Hogarth's servant says is that he was taxidermied and he stayed on a kind of mantelpiece in, in the hall in Hogarth's house, um, which is unusual because taxidermy wasn't a very popular or even, um, I'm trying to say this nicely, skilled craft at the time. Uh, 18th century taxidermy isn't pretty, um, but the, the servant says that the, this specimen will look good for a long time, which is obviously quite unlikely. Um, so that, but, there's a chance that maybe sitting in someone's attic is 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 Hogarth's pug Trump stuffed and mouldy and moth-eaten and waiting for someone to find him. Just as um, a few years ago, uh, Lars Sarp, kind of that BBC programme about um, Louis Rubiliac's bust of Hogarth, which really came with a, a statue of, of Trump, which was recreated in kind of the Chelsea porcelain factory. So there are loads of... Um, Kind of copies of this lost terracotta Trump, but not the original itself. So, so Hogarth, so Trump and terracotta Trump remain miss missing action, but their image is is ubiquitous, both in those those marble, little marble porcelain Trumps that you just mentioned they have in the house, and you know in portraits of Hogarth everywhere. Uh, this is how he kind of one of the ways he's kind of left his legacy in this kind of like mini market of. of Kind of pug memorabilia um and his last self-portrait um hogarth painting the comic muse would have originally had a pug in it when the national portrait gallery um did some x-rays on the on the portrait back in the 1960s they found that it originally had a, a pug urinating on a pile of pictures and hogarth obviously thought better of it at some point and covered it up so that that's kind of i suppose one of trump's kind of lasting memories because by if we assume that we, he got Trump in 1732-ish to be featured in Rake's Progress in 1734, he must have been quite old by the time that kind of self-portrait with Pug was finished in 1745. He's probably dead already. He probably is, um, yeah, yeah. Which is a funny thing to think about, so. But adds another layer as well to the kind of, if that timeline's the case, the degree of tribute that comes with it. And, you know, a, a perspective that you were saying about Hogarth has contained his image as an image within that portrait and the prominent to the foreground is the dog. So perhaps it's less a portrait of Hogarth and more of Trump? Yeah, definitely. A tribute and to Trump, as it were. A tribute to Trump, absolutely. And I think that's, that's really touching. And the fact that he 
he did he made so much of their shared resemblance that something that people still pick up now you can't miss it the way their kind of foreheads look a bit like each other it's this yeah really touching loving portrait a testament to a relationship between a dog and a person that's quite unusual for its time thank you very much john and thank you very much to everyone else thanks very much everyone. <laughs>